Hey guys, welcome to the Neglected Podcast. This podcast is not to change your mind, but to invite you into somebody else's narrative. This is a podcast to give a voice to the neglected. It is also an opportunity for all of us to engage. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Neglected Podcast. My name is Nick Schultz. I'm here with, like always, producer Quinn Harris. What up? Out here at City Church. Now, this might be aging me quite a bit, but there used to be a show called Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman when I was growing up. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, you're already laughing at it, but yeah. so as soon as I, I hear that, remember that, I think of just like, instead of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, it's like producer DJ Quinn yeah, my uh, DJ Quinn, producer grandma, man, or something. My grandma used to watch that. Really? Yeah, for real. She, they, had, they were one of the uh, like three channel TV. Yeah. You know, grandparents, and that was one of them. The Doctor Quinn. Yeah, know. I think it was like Jane Seymour or something like. Yeah, that. Yeah, my mom watched it for Sunny, the guy. The guy. See, I don't remember any show. <laughs> All right, so obviously we have someone over here laughing, chiming in. So let's introduce her right now. <laughs> this is Grace Sotomayor. Yes. Did I pronounce that correctly? Correct. What is the full name, actually? Um, Grace Vani Sotomayor Montre. All right. You got that? Type that on the screen. Yeah. Ask, for, ask yeah, for spelling yeah. later, Quinn. Yep. That's good. We will get spelling. Sounds good. Now, Grace, this is The Neglected, and we've got some really cool questions and things we want to talk about with, with you this morning here at City Church. Thank you for hosting, Quinn. And first of all, before we get into all that, why don't you give us a little bit of a history of your family, kind of where they came from, country-wise, ethnicity, and kind of how you ended up here in Savannah. Sure. Well, um, I was born on the island of Puerto Rico, and that's where my family is from, from as long as we can remember, and um, stayed there about until I was two years old. And then, of course, my dad had other aspirations, and he thought that coming to the mainland states would be a great opportunity for overall growth as a family. So we moved around for quite a bit, uh, ended up in Florida for the first few years. And then uh, once my dad unfortunately got laid off, he found work at Gulfstream, which is a huge employer in Savannah, Georgia. So then we made our way up there. And uh, I've been here in the Savannah area since I was seven years old, Savannah, Richmond Hill. Gotcha. Yeah. What do you think about Savannah? Oh. Now, now compared to when you were seven? Sure. Uh, I think I have um, matured in being able to appreciate Savannah's charm, its character, um, its unique history and, and blend of different communities within a greater community. I certainly didn't fall in love with Savannah like some people did. I had to learn how to love Savannah. Uh, so um, it, was, it was very culturally different because even though I spent most of my formative years here, I grew up within this uh, Hispanic culture sphere. And so um, the only interaction I had with non-Hispanic kids growing up was really at school and with neighborhood kids. But even my faith community was predominantly Hispanic. And how was that a good or a bad thing when you went into like teenage years or you had to go out on your own kind of thing of being in a little bit of a maybe protected bubble or what, you know, kind of what you would call it and going, going down to the real world. Um, 
I definitely experienced culture shock at around 14 when my parents told my sister and I that we were going to try out a new church, always with good intentions, you know. Um, but we went from a very small, tight-knit Hispanic church to a predominantly Anglo-American church, a white church. And um, it, it was quite difficult because uh, over the years I became aware of how unsouthern or how un-American I was considered to be by a lot of people. And all of a sudden you've got not necessarily bad things, but different things that are foreign to our culture, like this love for American football and camping and things that aren't bad. But uh, <laughs> I don't like I don't like camping. Either, I'll be honest. <laughs> right. And so, you know, it's um, it's things that I just it, it wasn't the way that we bonded. And then, of course, these were families that had generationally, for the most part, been in Savannah and um, they were very tight knit. And I think that I longed for being part of that community in the same way that I felt everyone else was because I had such an amazing extended family, but they were always in Puerto Rico. So I wanted to try to find, not that I could replace them, but something that could extend in that way, you know, here in Savannah. But it was quite diff difficult finding my place. For your, for your family, your parents, what was the integration for them, like talking to them coming from Puerto Rico to coming to Savannah? Did they just try to live the American lifestyle and fit in? Did they stay in that bubble as well? Or what's it been like uh, family-wise as a whole? Well, that's an interesting question because um, my parents, my father and mother, they have very different personalities as most people do in marriage. And my mother was always kind of she always went with the flow. She tried to be positive, and even though she was shy with her English language, um, everybody really liked my mom because you almost have a different personality when it's not your native language. You know, it's um, she's very sweet. She's very kind of you know just kind of goes with everything, and she'll tag along if they invited her uh, to women's conferences and ministries. Um, but certainly, my mom felt very shy about uh, the language. And then my father was definitely the more outgoing one. He's the one who brought us to the States in the first place. So he didn't have a problem with communicating in English, but he felt that at work, um, he often wasn't respected and he would get very frustrated. And, uh, and he also missed that spontaneity in warm cultures that we often experience where um, you don't have to put it in the calendar to swing by someone's house. You know, it's a very open atmosphere. People stay up late at night. It's open spaces. Um, there's definitely certain terrain that he prefers over the other. For example, he loves Fuller more than Savannah because it's a very open space. Yeah. Something as simple as landscape, for example, will remind him of his environment growing up. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. You know, how are people that go through that, whether they're Puerto Rican, any kind of Latino or Asian or, you know, refugees that are coming into Savannah from, from the Middle East, like, how can, how does that feel for them and how can people kind of help engage in them and what they're going through? Yeah, I think there's a, I mean, obviously I didn't have this figure out when I was growing up because what happens with kids of immigrant parents, even though Puerto Rico is part of the States, it's kind of a similar experience in some sense, um, is that kids just want to be like everyone else, right? And so while I definitely always sensed frustration as I got older and I could tell that I was different, um, there was definitely a part of me that wanted to just, like my mother, kind of go with the flow and blend in because I wanted to belong somewhere. Um, but I think that 
a lot of people oftentimes try to tell me what my culture was about. In fact, the mm. people who may have heard conversations that their parents had, especially when you get into the politics of, oh, Puerto Rico doesn't pay taxes like here in the States, for example. I mean, that would come up a lot like, oh, you're American, but you're not really American. And here's why, mm. you know, um, or you know, with good intentions, they kind of lump us into these bigger categories, right? Like all Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and <laughs> Central Americans are the same. Um, and then you had people who tried to, in good intentions, make me feel more part of them, but kind of denied the uniqueness in the sense like, oh, well, you know, I have a Mediterranean aunt and you guys look similar in coloring and you have similarities. And so I really like Puerto Ricans because it reminds me of this, which is not bad, but it's almost like it's good. You want to feel connected in some way, but you can't ignore the fact that there are unique things that make every culture different. Do you feel any more prejudice or racism, whether this is from the past or anywhere up to where you are currently, where it's come from kind of white people or um, people that aren't Latino or even more or less that have come from people that are Latino based on where you are from or where your family's from. Is there any of that that's hard too? Yeah, um, the, the tricky thing about when we talk about prejudice and biases is that there's so many different branches of it, right? You've got racism, you've got classism, you've got colorism. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely have experienced, Race is a very complicated question for the Latino, I think, because... Can you his, unpack that a little bit? Yes, because uh, Hispanic is uh, considered to be an ethnicity. Um, it's a culture. But when we talk about race in the States, it gets tricky, right? Because you think of the U.S. Census Bureau, and you usually only have black or white. Like, even Asians get classified as white, from mm -hmm. my understanding, unless that's recently changed. And so that kind of created an identity crisis in me for yeah, a while. They have race and then ethnicity sometimes. Right, yeah. race and then ethnicity. And so this question of, because in Puerto Rico, we don't deny that we have different races, but we have mixed over time, a lot of us, you know, and we're just kind of known as Puerto Ricans. Um, and even though there might be some racism there, I, I don't feel like it's experienced the same way that it is here, where everything really is, no pun intended, out of respect, black and white, you know, on the topic of race. In Puerto Rico, what I experience a lot of time is colorism um, and classism. So people look at the texture of your hair. If you have more European-like features, uh, you tend to be more esteemed and more uh, considered beautiful. Which or, are what? What would they say are European features? So European features, like it's what you usually see in Hollywood. So think more Anglo-American features, for example, or more, you know, your your narrow noses or your a certain uh, ratio of lips. Um, you know, it's that classic, I, for lack of a better word. It's anywhere from the spectrum of more Mediterranean look to a very more blonde hair, blue eyed look. Okay. That is more desired. And so, and that's, a lot of that has to do with our history, right? That it's the devastating effects of colonization, right? Whoever's in power, um, people want to be more like because that person's on top. And so, you know, you have people in Latin America who will straighten their hair, um, who hate their curly hair, who will purposely try to marry up in sense of who has lighter features in order to, we have this phrase in Puerto Rico that goes, mejora la raza, and that means improve your race. And so 
my mom's side of the family is mixed. We have descendants who are African slaves. And then my dad's side of the family, there might be some indigenous traces, but it's more predominantly European. And so even with uh, my parents getting together, there was tension because there was fear that, oh, what will my hair come out to be like? I mean, that's really unfortunate, but, and we joke about it. We'll think it's funny within each other. We'll be like, oh, you have good hair, you have bad hair. But really there's like this underlying insecurity of I am not wanted because I don't have the desired features. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I even would go as far as to say that I think a lot of my Hispanic friends who grew up in the States, whether they realized it or not, they would purposely try to go out with white guys because it was embedded in their conscious that that was somehow improving the race by getting to be able to have certain desirable features with children. So how much pressure did that ever put on you, whether it's from other people putting it on or you put it on yourself and how those, those kind of things affected you? Or do they still even affect you? Yeah, I mean, um, that's an interesting question. So I think it's both. I think whether people directly said it or not, just the kind of conversations that I was a part of definitely made me realize that there were desirable traits and undesirable traits. And then I kind of put that pressure on myself because I never wanted to feel like other in my own family, you yeah. know? And so I, when I look back, I have to do some soul searching and, and face some hard truths that even I was prejudiced to a certain extent when I would look for certain people to associate with because there were certain things that I didn't want to be associated with, right? You know, there's just, um, oh, you know, I'll date this kind of guy and I'll hang around these kind of circles because they're more intellectual, elite, affluent. Um, and then, you know, I... I ended up marrying someone who's not, you know, he's he's from India. <laughs> so that's completely different features there. Yeah, I'm excited to get into that in a little bit. Yeah, and so, but one of those conversations that came up um, when he tried to compliment the complexion of my skin, I realized I kind of fired back without meaning to once, and I said, I don't want to be known for the color of my skin. Because I knew that at some point, if we were to have children, they wouldn't be my complexion. They may very well be darker. And I didn't want anyone to think it was okay to either esteem that or depreciate that. So much we say and do and assume and think you're helping people and think you're really engaging in, in, in their lives and there to help and, and hearing your story and some, a lot of other people's stories about you know, what, what it really is like for someone who isn't white to go to a predominantly white church you know, the best, uh, the best definition of racism I've ever heard was actually by this uh, Christian ethics professor, African-American, Dr. Reggie Williams, and he says that real racism isn't so much about this conscious hate that we feel towards other uh, groups, although that's how we often see it manifested. It's more about seeing the world through our lens as a race and thinking that that's the standard, mm. that's the norm yeah. how for everything we do, which is easy for anyone to do. But for example, when we assume, when we set up, when we choose certain genres of music as preference, right? Or, you know, we do certain kind of activities to reach out to people that appeal to certain groups, but we don't take into consideration that maybe that's not. <laughs> come on our camping trip, right? Right, come on our camping trip. <laughs> not a bad thing. It's great that I got that experience. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's not reflective 
of the diversity yeah. and, and we don't because and like you said we think that we're doing well because we've got a few sprinkled in but you know and i see this even as an educator sometimes is people who mean well will have this conversation about diversity and say we've got that that one african-american kid that everybody loves and we think we're doing so great and um and that is a great start but and i've said this openly in meetings before it's like but we have to make sure that we don't make this person the um the rule right that may be exception that's wonderful that this person feels so embraced but keep in mind that not every person who walks through the doors will have that kind of bold personality or be able to just kind of integrate so easily yeah. and um i really do think that when diversity is reflected in the leadership um it opens doors for people to feel more safe to come in yeah i agree with that for sure yeah. so let's talk about the uh, the field you're in right now, you are an educator mm-hmm. at a school here in Savannah, predominantly white. Yes. And kind of what what's your role there? What do you do? Well, of all things, I am a Spanish teacher. Um, I'm a Spanish seventh and eighth grade teacher. And I, I'm also, our school really encourages us to kind of take on other roles and so, and be part of committees. So I am on the diversity committee as well. So... Um, there's a lot of initiatives that we try to create to get that conversation not only rolling, but also educate people to understand what a healthy, diverse uh, demographic looks like. Our good friend, Giovanna, who helps do the all of our neglected stuff, um, she was talking about being the token black friend sometimes for for people in a group of white friends where you know, she's kind of, she's safe for them. She's like a safe black friend sometimes. And as a white person, you feel good because you have a black friend and you can say that, you know, I'm never racist or I don't have any prejudices or whatever. And so I can kind of say or believe whatever I want because I do have a black friend and kind of expect her to be that way. Um, Do you experience that too as a Latino, whether it's in the school system, at your job, whether it's being an all-white church before or just even in a friend group where it's you are really nice and comfortable for people where it's like yep I do have a Latino friend mm-hmm. but that, that doesn't mean people engage farther like you were just talking about too it's like there's a ton of Latinos right. there's a tons of different different personalities and kinds of people that are African-American right. and so just because you're friend with one doesn't mean you have it all figured out and like we stop learning and engaging and and trying to 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 get better, you know, and and bring more people in our life who are different. I, growing up in a, when I made that shift to a predominantly white church, that was such a complex, complicated time because there seemed to be a disconnect. There were these people telling me that they loved me. They loved what I had to offer. And I do think that there were some, there was some, there was a lot of sincerity Mm -hmm. in their comments as some of them who just loved to spend time with me. But then I'd hear awful, awful, hurtful jokes like, you know, go back to Cuba, go do your Christmas shopping at uh, Walmart on 17. All y'all Mexicans look alike. Like these are the kind of things that I, I had, uh, gosh, I had one of the leaders once tell me that I must be so happy I can rejoice with my cousins at the border now because Obama won. You know, even though he never had a discussion with me about politics, he just kind of looked at me and decided that I was part of the problem. People like me. And so, again, this is, I've moved on and I've realized that we all have shortcomings and brokenness, but 
I do realize that I was telling myself for so many years, well, they can't really be that racist because they love me. They include me in trips and in parties. And by the time I left, I realized it's kind of like when you're in a bad relationship and you don't realize it because there are these good things happening, but you're trying to overlook all the other bad things. Um, so I think a lot of people uh, can easily say that they have one black or brown friend and feel because it makes them feel better about themselves. But I could be married to someone from another country and still say awful things about that person's country. Sure. If I'm not careful. Yeah, my favorite quote, I think I've said almost on every podcast is empathy requires proximity. Yes. And if you're <clears throat> just have an opinion or you're removed from it or you have a one or two few friends that make you feel good about it, doesn't mean you're engaged in what they're they're going through. And that's kind of what we really want to try to do here is not just feel good that we know somebody. Right. But truly like what is somebody what is somebody going through? Um, who's like like you said before, it's in our backyard, in our neighborhood, and they're they're hurting, they're being neglected, and there's pe- we can do something about it. And it's something as simple as inviting them in, yes. listening to their story, realizing that, hey, it might not be as easy for them as we think it is, especially coming from a white perspective of, hey, we've had a black president, there's tons of Hispanic people that live around here, and you have every opportunity to achieve everything that anybody else does, so... Stop right. complaining. You got a great. Go do your thing. And, you know, you say that to anybody that isn't white and they roll their eyes like you do or they cry or they feel something because there's a disconnect there. Right. Right. It's, um, gosh, we, we, we think that as a country we're so progressive. And then you see with all the news coming out that, we're not as progressive as we thought we were, right? There's still a lot of issues with uh, prejudice and racism. And, um, and I also think that people don't understand that we focus so much on individuality in the American culture. We don't always think in terms of systems. Right. And that systems can be very harmful for people in general to move forward. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and so, yep. again, it's kind of like going back to that idea of there's that one black or brown person who's thriving in this environment. Why can't everyone else be like that person? And you don't understand that's the exception, not the rule. And that, you know, we're talking about systems that harm people from mm-hmm. moving forward. Speaking of systems, um, I don't want to go crazy into political system or anything like that, but. Obviously, I just want your kind of opinion on all the immigration stuff, how it affects you personally, um, how it affects family, people that you're close to that are Latino. And not necessarily, you know, it's like this isn't like, oh, I'm pro-Trump or I'm against Trump or pro-wall, do wall, don't do wall. But just more the human side of how everything that's going on affects you, affects, you know, people that you're close to and and what words and things other people say that they don't realize how hurtful it is or understand what you know people are really going through at the border. It's like, yeah, we know there's people that are trying to come in and smuggle drugs and guns and things like that, but there's a lot of people that aren't, they're humans, and you just have no idea kind of what they're going through and how that makes you know us feel here too. Right. Um, 
Well, I'll say first of all, so clearly because I'm Puerto Rican, we don't have to go through the paperwork that some of our other Latino friends have to go through. But I'll speak on both sides, on the illegal and the legal side. Um, I can speak from the legal side first because my husband is from India and we're going through that right now, that whole process. And, and I think what a lot of people don't realize when they say things like come to this country the legal way mm -hmm. is you have to be privileged to come to this country, financially privileged to come to this country most of the time the legal way, unless it's an extreme case like in Syria, for example, where there's right. a refugee status that's granted. Um, you know, my husband came here, quote unquote, the right way. You know, he came and he got his master's degree in engineering. Um, but his parents are um, in a very good financial position in their home country and they sacrificed and they helped him with that. Um, and now that we're switching from student uh, visa to spousal visa, um, that's a lot of money, even for you know middle-class America, when you have to pay an attorney, when you have to pay the fees for the medical exams. And that's if things go right. If things don't go right, that could cost you more along the way. And so, and that involves my husband having to humble himself and be out of work for a while because there are certain things you're not allowed to do legally until your status changes hmm. and work is very limited. Also, when we talk about the legal side, I, I'll have a lot of friends who, and again, all coming from a good place, but it hurts. I had a friend say to me once that, well, I'm just so upset for you and your husband who are trying to do things the right way, not like those illegal you mm -hmm. know, Mexicans coming over the border. Um, you know, my my ancestors came the right way why can't they and what people don't understand is there's power in knowing history right, right. Um, the bureaucracy wasn't the same even 20 years ago even 50 years ago when people were coming over to ellis island you know there <laughs> it there was just not the same navigation system and a lot of people just kind of looked the other way when people kind of came into the country right and we don't even know all the details of those stories and how they were able to stay here in this country and so when people say that with kind of this pride that, well, my family came as immigrants and they came the right way. It's a, kind of a lofty statement to say, because we don't really know everything that was entailed, right. most of us. But they want to think they did. But they want to think they we did. We all want to think the best of ourselves. and Right. Yep. And so, um, and then on the illegal side of that, again, we're talking about systems. We're talking about things that are beyond an individual's control. What do you do um, when the country that you're from is not giving you enough opportunities for your family. From the human side, I don't know any person who wouldn't do what they would have to do to feed hungry mouths, you know, to take care of their own children. I think sometimes we think of ourselves as a little bit more self-righteous than we, you know, more righteous than we really are. Sure. And um, I understand that there's a practicality in trying to have healthy policies. I get that. Um, but I think that the way we talk about it, we need to inform ourselves more about how the system works with the USCIS before we make assumptions. And um, we need to understand that these people are not thinking about technicalities. They're thinking about survival, which most of us have never really experienced. We may have worked hard for things in our lives, but we never had to think we were gonna end up on the streets or in worse situations. Yeah. I do want to talk about your husband. It's such a, <laughs> it is such an interesting thing. Puerto Rican woman, Indian man. <laughs> how does that even? I think it's beautiful, but how does that even happen? So, in, in America, so it's so great. 
Actually, I don't know if our story of how we met is so much as interesting as the process that we're going through now in a marriage. Maybe but. not, but just like, what? How did you? <laughs> how did you even come together? Sure. So I'm going to tell you that the real way it's online dating. Oh, sweet. <laughs> so we um we. <laughs> It's really funny. Um, so we, we, we got onto a dating website and I had already had plenty of bad experiences before, but I guess there was a mind shift in, in me. I was like, okay, well, maybe my strategy and my approach has been off before. And so I'm going to look for certain characteristics that I didn't look before. And I had really been reflecting on this whole idea of romantic Western love versus practical, like a partnership for life, right? And it's like, maybe my approach has always been a little too romantic, right? And not really about somebody who has the same values as me and somebody I can do life with. And so that just having, doing some reflection um, helped in my approach with online dating. So we met, we matched, um, we matched 80%. So I knew that. The other 20% according to the algorithms, I'm sure we had to work out. But my husband uh, reached out to me and he said that my profile looked awesome. And he said, you know, <laughs> it's awkward, right? He's like, I don't know how to do this. This is actually funny because he says to me that a lot of Indians who may not want arranged marriage and want some autonomy in the process, uh -huh. the second best thing would be online dating because it's the same concept as a matchmaker but there's somebody that's not your family doing it. It's these professionals who've established these algorithms. Yeah, such makes an engineer. sense. I gotcha. <laughs> and he's like, and so I want to find someone who has similar values, but I want to be loved for me, he said. So, you know, he had, was a romantic at heart, but he had some practicalities in there too. So we matched, we spoke, he was in California, and I said to him, I am a poor teacher who will never fly out to California to meet you, so unless you're gonna fly out here, don't continue talking to me. So within two weeks, he bought his ticket, and he kept flying back. Wow. <laughs> and so- You um, were worthy of cross-country travel. I was, isn't that a great thing to say? He, um, he was really excited, and so, but we definitely, that's, that's how we met, honestly. He flew over, and, um, within i mean quick rather quickly you know because we were already in our 30s and we had a long time to think about these things it's like all right let's do this <laughs> and we got married and we had a very cross-cultural wedding where i did the whole sorry thing and the whole white dress thing and uh, we had a salsa instructor come and then we did some indian dancing and traditions and so that. you're doing salsa and like bollywood oh, dancing yeah oh, we did goodness. the whole bangra and Dude, salsa. Quinn, that's your jam man look at him smiling over there it's like he would live for yeah. a wedding like that yeah. Well, we really wanted our wedding to send a, a message to the world almost. It's like, this is who we are. You know, we're a blend of different cultures and it's beautiful and it's vibrant and everyone is welcome. I love that. Yeah. That's like, that's fairy tale stuff right there. <laughs> that is like diverse fairy tale <clears throat> living right there. However, I do want to ask you about what was that like for not just you two, but your, your families and your <laughs> friends and your cultures. Um, what is it like for his family, who's Indian, marrying a Puerto Rican woman? Uh, what's it like for your family, marrying an Indian man? Um, right. Just, just country and culture alone. And then you can even throw in, you know, did you have the same religion of faith as well? Or was there, are there differences in family views? You know, all that kind of stuff. These are great questions. Um, well, it was kind of funny because I love my mother-in-law now, but when she first heard about me coming into the picture, she very honestly told my husband, don't do it. All Westerners get divorced. Oh, wow. 
I mean, that's really sad, right? But I can't blame her for thinking that hmm. um, when you look at our statistics. And so... Do his parents live in America too? Or no, they, so in he India? is the only one who came from India okay. to the States. Okay. And so he was uh, uh, FaceTiming her. And um, she said, don't do it. And in fact, when we first started chatting, his aunt was still sending him pictures of potential wives. Because uh, in India, they do like what's called like a biodata. It's yeah. like... I mean, it's matchmaking online, but done in real life with your family involved kind of thing. Wow. It's almost like a resume. That's scary. <laughs> I know, but it's, it's kind of impressive at the same time. It's like, man, you guys really thought of everything. So, um, but anyhow, but my husband was always kind of almost a rebel without a cause. He had no problem telling his parents. He's like, I love you, but I am not asking for your permission. I am going to proceed with this. But he did th but he had the same attitude about coming to America. You know, mm -hmm. like usually in his culture, when Indians come to a different country, they come together. They come in families, which I, I think is smart. It's beautiful. Um, but he was the exception. And he was kind of always the wild child inside. So he had no problem telling them. And so after that, after his mom realized that this was really going to happen, his mom and dad pretty much came on board. And, um, and not only them, the most beautiful part is that his extended family has been amazing with me. They would, I mean, half of my uh, friends list on Facebook is now like people from India that I've never met. And they would FaceTime me and like his aunts spent like nine days sharp shopping at the markets just to get me the right sari and jewelry and bangles. Mm. And they were just, thrilled you know um I it's funny because when I hear most stories about how a westerner marries someone from India it's unfortunate right you've got people who disown people or who are just not talking to the other person but uh, he says that in his region in the West Bengal region Calcutta where Mother Teresa spent a lot of her time Bengalis have this reputation within their own country of being these really progressive intellectual kind of people that are just like hey cool why not you know they're kind of open and so his parents have been very supportive do you maybe don't at all but do you ever feel it's hard to just tell maybe not real close friends but other people it's like hey we're really struggling my husband's trying to get this visa and there's all these problems where whether somebody would just say it directly or it's implied like hey get over it he's lucky to even be in this country and you're lucky to even apply for this and you're complaining about trying to trying to be here because they have no idea what that's even like um, is that even hard to bring up in certain contexts where you're at or people have commented on it because you know just from a white man's perspective mm -hmm. you know it's unfortunately a lot of people that i've been around just those kind of things are just like yeah it should be hard right um fortunately we've had people that are, they haven't said things like that. But what we have experienced is people who they mean well, and they try to give us good advice. Oh, just do this, just do that, just apply for this job. And what they don't understand is, again, all the red tape that is involved with yeah. being able to be here legally in this country. I, I have to be honest with you, I didn't realize all the freedoms that I had as a citizen until I married my husband and realized, well, I could get any job that has nothing to do with the field that I studied. He can't, you know. Yeah. Um, I could, you know, easily change my address had I not been married, you know, move to a different apartment if I'm not happy. Right now we can't, you know. And so, and, it, and again, it's all worth it in the end, but I think people take for granted everything that comes with being a citizen in this country. Um, 
and then they think that whatever privileges they have are afforded to everyone else. And that's just not the case. It's, it's very difficult to come and stay in this country. Um, for example, my husband under the new, I, think, I believe it's called Higher American by American uh, that, uh, that Trump wanted to enforce. Mm -hmm. Uh, people who are trying to apply for work visas now have to prove even now more than ever with documentation that their skills are valuable uh, enough to stay in this country, that not just anybody from this country can replace them. And I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I'm just putting out the reality that, I mean, these people really have to fight to prove that they're going to contribute to our community. But as U.S. citizens, how often do we even ask ourselves what we're contributing you know, or if we're just living for ourselves, getting that paycheck, you know what I mean, and our tax return to spend on ourselves. Whereas someone like my husband has to prove to the government he's not going to be a burden. Mm. And we even in the process of marriage uh, visa and a spousal visa, we have to prove that our marriage is valid, which I mean, we know that it is. But there's so many fears that I had to think about, for example, oh, were we together long enough? Are they gonna suspect you know, that we hadn't been dating long enough? Whereas a, an American couple would never have to think about proving the validity of their love or marriage. We had to take pictures, date them. We had to print uh, interactions of each other with messaging, uh, receipts of him flying to see me and bouquets that he would send me. We had to get all this proof together really? to explain no, we really do love each other. We're not frauds, you know. You have to prove your love, huh? We have to prove our love. And I mean, that, that le level of privacy is, is removed. Maybe know? everybody should have to prove their love. To... <laughs> we always want the president to do something we think is better. We always want governors, senators, the mayor, our pastor at our church, our boss. We always, you know, a system we want, like, if you would just do this, these problems wouldn't happen. And we also know, though, is that none of those people or institutions can change, can force someone's heart to change about the, how they view an actual person. That's true. So as far as laws and policies and um, that stuff's really hard. But as far as like just us as individuals, that's kind of what we want to get to now. And, you know, Grace as the individual, like would have you learn based on your experiences with neglect or hurt that have kind of shaped your your view and how you you're trying to help other people right now that maybe you've you felt that way in the past i definitely feel that as individuals we all have to get to a place where it bothers us enough that we don't want someone else to go through that um i think that we all have platforms whether we realize it or not we all have everyday opportunities where we have someone's attention. Somebody's paying attention to what we say or what we do and is influenced by that. And so we need to tap into that and be aware of whose attention we have in order to maximize our opportunities to just be a good influence and create these opportunities where there can be authentic human connection that is established and meaningful conversations and meaningful things happening. You know, like um, you said, we know inviting people over to our house i think that's a great start but i think what really needs to happen is we really need to be okay with um, giving up control um, because i'll never forget this a friend of mine he is a director of the diversity committee at a corporate company that he works for and he has realized grace people 
are okay with minorities and you know coming up and being part of their staff faculty as long as they still feel a sense of control talking about the majority yeah and he said but as at the moment they feel they lose that control or that a minority leader has risen to the top and is all of a sudden succeeding and doing better that is a threat to them and so he said we have to get over trying to control the environment and the outcome in order for diversity to truly thrive and i think that inviting people over to our homes is is, is a good start but what about us coming over to their environment you mm -hmm. know and and being immersed in a different reality and and being intentional because the thing is Diversifying, it doesn't happen without being intentional. Mm -hmm. Inclusion doesn't happen without being intentional. And, and a lot of the fear that I hear from people from the church in general oftentimes is, I don't want to make anyone a project. But I understand. But it's like my friend said, it's not about making people a project. You got to understand. You got to shift the way you think. It's about making people priority. And um, it is a messy process. There is no one way to do it. It's kind of like when you're trying to solve global problems, you've got to come up with partial solutions first, you know, because there's many things to consider. But people have got to see that you really care about them. And the worst thing we can do is um, kind of push our ideas of how things should be done. I remember I attended once this circle here in Savannah. I, I guess I failed to notice that they were a highly politically charged group with very radical ideas on the left spectrum. And they had very good information about these statistics, about gun violence, about poverty and the marginalized. And it was all very eye-opening and I was so grateful for that. But at the end of the day, when I asked them, right, so, what communities are you involved with now? They kind of looked at me blank because they all kind of hung out with each other. Same people, yeah. It's the same people. And so what good is it to say that these marginalized need to have a voice if you're not letting them speak their voice to you? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got <clears throat> to... I just think that everybody, whether you're at a cashier register, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, we have opportunities, but we have to be intentional. If you especially have, you're willing to admit a prejudice or have hard feelings towards a certain person or a certain person with an idea, whether it's a political thing, I just can't talk to somebody that thinks this about guns or about immigrants or the border right. or about Trump or about abortion. I just can't. Right. Well, then that's where you really need to do some heart work, look at it, and until I think really you're willing to have a friend or sit down that has that point of view you can't have a conversation with them that's just as much on you as it is them right I, I think what's happened is a lot of people start to feel guilt like I have a, I have friends who have said I'm tired of feeling white shame white guilt mm -hmm. right like everything is my fault everything is my fault because I'm white and um, and I don't blame them because there's there's just a negatively charged feeling in general on the political spectrum right now but I, I would say I heard this once before and it was put it was just well put it's not so much about you being the one to blame. We can't be responsible for what our ancestors have done or what even for what our fathers and have done, but it's about responsibility. You know, it's about just taking on that responsibility and wanting to make things right, even though it wasn't you who, 
you know, decided that slavery was okay or, you know, Jim Crow laws or whatever it may be. Um, and I think that that's not just true for quote unquote white people. That's true for everyone. Because look, even in the Latin American community, we oppress each other all the time. Indigenous people have to fight for their rights in Latin American countries. Mm. Black people are discriminated against and there's colorism and it's real. In my husband's country in India, he'll tell you, oh, I mean, the caste system, you know, it's, yeah. it's still col culturally embedded in people, even though the country is a democracy. Because like you said, you can't change people's hearts. That's got to be something that they come to do on their own. And I just, you know, when I have conversations with my white friends, it's not about like the individualistic side of it and defending yourself. Like I, hey, I wasn't, I wouldn't vote for slavery, and I wasn't about that. Right. Okay. I, I understand, but can can you acknowledge that there's systems in place that are still happening, that are affecting people of color? that we don't consider white people because of systems that were put in place by white people even years ago, whether you had nothing to do with it or not. Right. Can you acknowledge pain or acknowledge that this stuff is going on and try to see it? Right. Where you're not taking, you don't have to take ownership of it, but just say, see it and have a conversation with someone that it might be affecting. Right. And, and get into it that way. And, you know, you might even apologize, like, man, I'm sorry you're going through this. You don't have to say, I'm sorry that my people did it necessarily if you don't feel that way, but just see other see other people's pain and how they've been neglected as an individual or as an entire race or a group of people and just see can yeah. you see it i would say that diversity is about celebrating but inclusion is about seeing people yeah you know validating what they've gone through and i think that's hard to do you know don't want to go too much down the rabbit hole with faith but it's like our our human side like we are self-defensive and how we want to view things and until you get a broader picture of like, man, this is how God views this person. Right. It's a lot differently than, than you and your own kind of strength. And you know, that's another topic for another time, but that's hard to do. Right. And that's why I think we're, we have so many problems because we view people how we want to, instead of how they were actually created. Right. Or we want to help people the way we want to help. That's going to make us feel good about ourselves, but it's not really helping. Sure. I'll help you try to be more like me or be a little more like this or be what I think the ideal for you is as opposed to. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. Well, Grace, we appreciate you being here. Is there anything, any other knowledge you want to drop on anybody or challenge or ways people could contact you if they have more questions or want to have a conversation about some of the stuff you've, you've talked about? Sure. Um, I would just, to conclude everything, I would say that uh, everybody has daily opportunities that we may be overlooking to start those difficult conversations about inclusion and diversity and to even reach out to people and just make them feel like they're seen and they're heard and they're celebrated. We all have those opportunities, but it takes, it takes being intentional. And um, I am very excited uh, because I think we're living in a time where people have more access to technology to hear people's stories and be moved to do something about it. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, I don't have any fancy social media links, but uh, my email is gs, like my initials, Grace Sotomayor, gs3859 at gmail.com. Uh, number is 912-713-6025. I'm very open as long as People come at it with a humble heart. You know, we can talk about any difficult subject. It doesn't just have to be about race. Because um, um, especially if you're in the community, I want, I'd like to hear people's stories. 
Sweet. Well, we thank you for being here. And you can hit me up at emails, Nick, at exceltoday.com. Social media handle is at Schultzy Time. We are at For the Neglected. So we appreciate you being here, Grace. Thank, thank you for uh, my man, Al Main, who gave us the Neglector intro music. I want to thank Ben and Gum Mountain for our brand design and our host, City Church, for this awesome setup. We really appreciate you, Quinn, and your staff. For sure. So, Grace, peace out. Thanks for being here. Have a good one. Thanks for having me. Later, y'all. Bye.